If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to Romans. We resume our study this morning, Romans chapter 15. We are making our way, getting now towards the end of this letter of Paul's that he wrote to the church, and some powerful things have been here. But this morning, kind of something that just has nothing to do with Romans. I was thinking about this morning as I was getting ready uh, to come to church, uh, to come and, and worship, and I was actually thinking about a conversation that Richard and I had had before, and you've heard me speak multiple times, maybe even ad nauseum at this point, about my own struggles with anxiety and depression and how they have really been a part of my life and even a part of my Christian life. And I think I also maybe sometimes can be imbalanced by sharing that with you. Because in, in some ways, I, I just want you to know that if you have those struggles, I can totally identify with, with that. But this morning, I was thinking about something that actually, Richard, kind of a conversation we had really kind of inspired me to want to take just a moment this morning to say, you know, despite all the, the struggles with depression and anxiety, there's real joy in Christianity, real joy, real victory. That, you know, sometimes I I don't ever want you to think that my life is just hum and glum all the time. That I just lived depressed or I lived anxious. Uh, That's not true. There there are days that I have immense joy in what Christ has done. And in fact, David's words in Psalm 51, they come to me often. When David prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit in me. That there is real joy in the salvation of Christ. And this morning... I just feel compelled. Maybe you're like me and you have some of those similar struggles. I just want to say, brother or sister, there is real joy in Christ, real victory, real victory, where we get up and we can be transformed and we are transformed and we can have joy and we can, we can have a song in our hearts and, and, and be uh, celebratory in our minds because Christ really has done something true and valuable in us. If you're converted this morning, you call Christ Lord, then you stand redeemed. And whatever, whatever valleys you have to walk through, the overarching truth is that you are called, you are blessed, you are saved, you are made righteous. And I want us to rejoice in that. Um, I'm, 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 I'm joyful over that this morning, that whatever else is happening in the world, and Christ is reigning, He's King. And he is walking with us. So that's for free. The rest of this is going to cost you. I don't, know, I don't know what the free thing was supposed to mean, but anyway, that's a joke gone south is what that is. Um, this morning we kind of turn back around to uh, the book of Romans. We've been dealing with bearing with each other and kind of what it means to bear with the weak and to bear with the strong, to be strong and to be weak, to bear burdens to be patient with folks who have differing viewpoints than we do, and to find ourselves in a community of people filled with people who are different. And how do we operate in the context of those differences? That's what Paul has really been dealing with. How do we live life to the glory of Christ in the context of of living with people who are very different than us, but yet who we would call brother or sister. So we've been looking at that. Today, Paul is beginning to transition now towards the end of the letter, towards bringing this letter to a close. And he comes back around to one of the fundamental ideas 
in the book of the Romans, in the, book, in the letter written to the Romans, one of the fundamental ideas of who is Christ and what is his overarching purpose for humanity. What does he do for his people? When we start thinking about what Jesus has done and will do, the one word that would sum that up would be give hope, or that's two words, give hope. We'll just sum it up with one word, is hope. That Jesus really does give us hope. He really does restore to us the very hope, the peace that we need. And so that's really what, what we're looking at this morning. We're in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 to 13 today. So, beloved of God, turn your attention now to Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 8. This is God's infallible and errant word. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thanks. Thank You for this Word and for this opportunity. Thank You to, for this opportunity to be fed, to be transformed, and to be made new. We are before You this morning. This is Your time. Do Your work in us, we pray. Amen. You know, you've heard me talk about comic book heroes before from up here, and I will probably talk about them again. Uh, they, they present us with a picture of humanity that I think is beneficial and helpful for us to consider ourselves in light of what it is we're truly seeking after and what we need. So we start thinking about comic book heroes. They really are an American staple. I mean, maybe you're just familiar with the movies, but comic book heroes predate movies by decades and decades. They've been around for quite some time. In fact, we might even say that comic book heroes are just a take on common mythologies that have existed for millennia in certain cultures. The idea that you have a race of people who are somehow superhuman or beyond human who can bring salvation to people in need. It's a very attractive idea. Why? Because we understand what it is to be in need. So it should not be lost on us that one of the biggest genres of movies out right now are superhero movies. And some of the heroes are otherworldly, some are regular people who just have really great training. Whatever the case is, we are a people, we are a culture who loves to see comic book heroes or heroes in general beat the bad guy. And there's a reason for that, because I think it's in our DNA to love a good salvation story, to see rescue, to see someone turn the tables on, on evil, to see people who are in an otherwise powerless situation be empowered by something beyond themselves. It, it, it sells because it appeals. It appeals 
because we each can identify. We can see ourselves in the characters and we know what it's like to be in a position to just, if we only had something more powerful than ourselves, we could have done better. We could have been better. We could have had victory. So it sells well. So we love seeing the, the villain get defeated. We love seeing the good guys win, or some of us do. Some of us like seeing the bad guys win. But either way, we like to see somebody more powerful than us win. So let's just leave it at that. They're fun to watch, and they're entertaining, but they do something important. They leave us wanting. And there's a reason that they leave us wanting. They leave us wanting because these heroes will have to save again. And they'll have to save again, and they'll have to save again, and they'll have to save again. And there's a reason for that. They can beat the bad guy. They can foil the crime, but they can't beat what's in the human heart. And so that we see repeated actions where these heroes have to come in and do again and do again and do again. And so they remind us of something this morning. They remind us that we need a better salvation, that we need a better hope, that we need something more substantial. I mean, the Incredibles are hugely insightful here. If you've ever watched that movie, you remember Mr. Incredible, when he's being interviewed one time, says, you know, didn't we just clean this mess up? You know why? Because he's dealing with something fundamental right there, even though I don't think Disney or Pixar, whoever made that movie, is trying to do this. There is something wrong in the human heart that causes these messes to, go, to be made again and again and again. And so all the brawn and strength and smarts and intellect and technology and other worldliness that is not Christ, all that put together cannot solve the problem. Because the problem is way more simple and complex than that. It's simple in the sense that, well, it's the human heart. That's what the problem is. It's more complex because how do you change a human heart? Well, that's a different story. It's not purely by rescuing them from the bad guy because a comic book hero cannot save us from the perversive despair of sin. So Paul is transitioning here from bearing with one another to salvation of Christ and Christ's people, whether they be Jew or Gentile. So he's coming back around. He's dealt with this already specifically verses nine or chapters 9, 10, and 11, and then even before that in talking about the effectiveness of the gospel. So he's coming back around to this idea as he's closing off this letter. And what I, what we, I want us to understand right out of the gate is, is that Paul's aim in the New Testament broadly, right? So just a broad New Testament statement here is to teach about the unity of the body of Christ regardless of ethnic differences. Paul is not trying to create a gospel for Jews and a gospel for Gentiles. He has worked very hard to dispel that and remind people who call Christ Lord, whether they be Jew or Gentile, that they are in Christ. They are in Christ by promise. They are in Christ through his own imputation of righteousness. They are in Christ by his election and calling, and this is true from least to greatest, from Jew to Gentile. All this, we are the body of Christ. That's what Paul argues predominantly for in the New Testament. So Paul is not here trying to discuss whatever promises might have been made to Israel in the Old Testament, rather. He's speaking of salvation. He's speaking of hope. He's speaking to all God's people. And he's telling us that the fruit of that, 
the fruit of what he's talking about, the ripple effect, so that we have hope in Christ and it, and it changes our hearts, the ripple effect of that then is worship, it's adoration, it's praise. It's what I was talking to you a, a moment before we started about real joy, real rejoicing that God has done something that no one else, including ourselves, could do. So Paul is here reminding us, everyone who reads this letter, that our saving hope is Jesus, and that's primary. Action heroes appeal to us, right? They do. We've already established this. They appeal to us because their work is quantifiable. You can see results immediately. Wow, man, if Tony Stark takes somebody down, they're down. If Thanos gets defeated, he's defeated. The problem, though, is that the human heart, the work in the human heart is not always that quantifiable. It's in fits and starts. It makes progress, and then it regresses. It makes progress, and then it regresses. You're dealing with, a, you're dealing with, a, with, with a, a, an ideology that has worked its way deep into the human heart that has to be taken out root and stone bit by bit that has to be made new, that work that only Christ can do. Because, see... If all we're dealing with is the bad guy, then we'll always be dealing with the same issue because there's always going to be a bad guy. Jesus comes to do something fundamental to our identity, to transform it so that we are transformed from death to life, from lost to found, from sinner to saint, which is not to say that we don't still struggle with sin, but that sin is not the dominating power in our life. Christ is. That's the goal of the gospel, is to make that fundamental transition so that we understand what hope, what peace, what joy, what life actually is, and that we can walk on a new pathway. And so the hero that we need is the incarnated Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who can do all the things that I'm saying and more. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see. It's this. Jesus is God's promise fulfilled. Jesus is God's promise fulfilled. So when Paul begins this paragraph, he's talking about a promise of hope. He's talking about a promise of peace, a promise of salvation in, in some regards, but the two words that he mentions here is the promise, and then he will go on to say, talk about the hope that this promise actually gives us. And so the message of the Bible is one body, under one head, Christ the Lord, that we are thought of as the, as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. It's the way the Apostles' Creed speaks of us, one holy, universal, apostolic church, the communion of the saints. That's what we are. We live in a culture that loves to make the distinctions among gender, among our ethnicity, and so many other things. But see, beloved, in the body of Christ, when we come together, what we are is the bride. We are the body. We are the communion. We are the church. This is the one place where while we recognize roles that complement each other, uh, certainly in gender, and they're important that we uh, keep those distinguished, but this is the one place where we come together where much of the diversity that we have is laid aside because we are united in Christ. And the thing that should compel us to want to be united 
It's this idea that every soul sitting in this room that calls Christ Lord at some point in their life understood what it meant to be hopeless. Maybe you got saved when you were really young and you couldn't fully grasp the concept. Or maybe like me, you got radically saved out of a life of addiction and you know exactly what hopelessness feels like. But every soul in here this morning who calls Christ Lord, you are an object of mercy and someone who is keenly aware of what it means to have a living hope. And that binds us together. That draws us in under the Lordship of Christ. And so when Paul begins to lay this out, for I tell you in verse 8 that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. So Paul mentions the word promise, and I love that he does that right off the bat. We're getting covenant language. This is how God talks to his people, that God has given us the promise of Christ or, or the promise of covenant. And that promise is covenant love, is covenant relationship, is a commitment to live with and for and in his people. And so when, we, when Paul starts laying out what Christ is, that he became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises, we are getting an inside look at what Christ is, that he, re, he is God's seal to promise of life, and He relates to us in this way. So when we think of the Old Testament, it is filled with promises. It is filled with promises to God's people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That is the Old Testament promise, beloved. That is the promise. Everything else kind of is an outflow of that. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That is a promise from God to his people, and Isaiah will elaborate on that promise and speak of the Emmanuel principle, God with us. And then, so when we look at this principle, this promise, that is the overarching statement of the Old Testament, and we have Isaiah in other places, not just Isaiah, that's just one example, speaking about this Emmanuel, this God with us, or God among us, we then begin to see that as Paul lays out here very very clearly, that Jesus is the seal of the Old Testament promises. He is our hope. He is our Savior. He is the giver of life. He is the one who does what is necessary in the human heart to convert it, to change it, to restore it. And so all the Old Testament promises culminate in Jesus. They come to a head in Jesus. Jesus is the answer to all the Old Testament promises. And he elaborates on this a little bit in verse 9. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God. So what is Paul doing? He's saying, well, Jesus is the, the, the culmination of the promises. By speaking of the people as the, those under circumcision, Paul is talking about the Jewish people. So Jesus has come to the Jewish people to, to, to embody the promises of God, to seal the promises of God, and to the Gentiles in order that they might glorify God for His mercy. In other words, God had a plan in Christ to save the Gentiles. Paul is making this argument here to this Roman church that would have been a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, reminding them that there was a plan set in place by God to save them both. And it comes to fruition in Jesus 
So the same mercy that God used to save Jews, He used to save Gentiles. It is God's mercy that saves. Beloved, it is God's mercy that saves. They're not different routes. They're not different ways in which it happens. There's one salvation. There is no other name under heaven, the New Testament tells us, by which men are saved. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. There is no other religion by which people are saved. It is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There are not many, many paths to the mountaintop. There is one. And it is through Jesus. That is Paul's point. In that way, it is very exclusive. And we acknowledge that. So Paul is laying this out here. But then he begins a series of quotes. In verse 9, he says, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That is a quote from Psalm 1849. It's this idea, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will be the example of praise among the Gentiles and sing to your name. I will lead the singing of praise to your name even among the nations. You could actually take that Greek word that we translate Gentiles here and just translate it generically, nations. Ethne, it's where we get our word ethnic from. Sometimes it specifically means Gentiles, but largely it just means the nations because every nation besides, uh, besides the Jews were considered Gentiles. So really, we have this promise of I will sing your praises among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of Yahweh among the Gentiles. And here's what I love. Here's the beauty of what this is doing. This is speaking about singing your name, establishing authority, establishing an object of worship, and then saying, because of mercy and redemption and reconciliation, we are now engaging in worship. That this, this joy, this hope, this restored life and peace and hope that we have has now given us a reason to worship. We worship because of what God has done. So that when we gather and sing, we typically gather, we sing three songs, we have some prayers, read Scripture, sing another, have a sermon, sing another, have a benediction, and you go home. It would be easy for you to just think of it that way. Well, this is what we do. We did da 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 We stand, we sit, we stand, we sit, we stand, we sit, we sing, we don't, we sing, we don't. And for a lot of us, it, can, it becomes that, right? It just kind of becomes that. But, but here's what Romans 15 is doing. It's saying, sure, the singing is good, the praying is good, the preaching is good. We, we should be hearing preaching. But are you really engaged in the worship and the one who has restored hope to you? We've sang about those concepts this morning. This becomes a challenge to us that is, is our worship driven, driven by real joy, that we are confessing to God, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for what you can do in the nations. Thank you that there are scads of other congregations out there right this moment singing and preaching and praying because of what God has done. A real sense of celebratory worship. That's what it's meant to produce in us. That's where it's meant to take us. That we confess and sing before all nations to God's mercy. Beloved, this is one of the ways in which we bear witness to the Lord. We gather, we sing, we pray, and we bear. Then Paul continues on with this idea. And again in verse 10, 
It is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again in verse 11, And praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let the peoples extol him. You can't miss the two themes that are very prevalent here, both joy and praise. Again, jubilant, think celebratory. Uh, sometimes we, we think that really the more somber something is, the more holy it is, and that's not necessarily true. There's sometimes that could be true, but, but really, joy, rejoicing, praise, extol, worship, sing, shout, celebrate, those are the terms that are also consistent with what biblical worship actually is, that we are rejoicing. Why? Because the promise of Messiah has come in Christ. He's come, and it's not just for the ethnic Israelite nation. It's for a people larger than that. That's Paul is, 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 is working here to keep mentioning the nations and Gentiles again and again in the context of Old Testament prophecy, poetry, and law. Now, I'm going to come back around to that idea here in just a minute. But I want us to understand he's very intentionally bringing Gentiles into these three separate categories, into the Old Testament Word, and there's a reason he's doing that. Once you look in verse 10, what I read, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people, that is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Rejoice, celebrate, and praise. That's the call. Rejoice, O Gentiles, is an express command with His people, putting the, the nations in with who is the people of God. Not every nation without discrimination, but a people who, are, who have now grown outside the borders of what would have been ancient Israel. And why do I love this little phrase, His people? I'll tell you why. Because it's just that little subtle reminder, and maybe not so subtle, but just that reminder. Let's just say it that way. It's that reminder, beloved, that if we're in Christ this morning, we are not strangers to the covenant. We're not orphaned. We're not fatherless. We are not without hope. And I know sometimes we want hope to be more tangible, hence superheroes are very attractive in that way. They offer a tangible, something tangible we can grab onto. But God offers us something real, something eternal, something that reminds us that we are found in Him. So we aren't strangers, we aren't orphans, we have purpose, we belong. Well, we have a name, the banner over us, Song of Solomon says, is love. The love of Christ. This morning, if you are in Christ, you are loved infinitely more than you can possibly imagine. And that is a beautiful truth. Paul elaborates on this, so he's quoted from Psalm 1849. He's now quoted from Deuteronomy 32:43. He then again quotes in verse 11 from Psalm 117, verse 1, as I just read a moment ago. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol Him. What's he saying? Do you people who have been called and who have been declared uh, a part of the family of God, let your response be worship and praise? And here's what I love about this. I want, you to, I want us to keep the context of this clear in our minds. I want you to notice what's, what, what's missing from this. What Paul is not saying when he quotes these Old Testament passages, praise and worship when it's easy, when it's good, when it's convenient. 
when you feel like it, when it's not so cold outside, when you are, are warm to it. He doesn't give any context to what worship and when worship or when worship should take place. What he says is, is let all the peoples extol him. That's because we are called to worship. The sum of our lives is to be worshipers. Yes, we're redeemed. Yes, we are the hopeful. Yes, we are the found. But beloved, we are worshipers. That's what God has called us into covenant with Him to give us life and so that we might properly relate and be those who worship Him well. That's the calling of Christ. When we start thinking about our rescue... I will say this, that my rescue, your rescue, they are invaluable. There's, there's, there's nothing to compare that to because we were dead and have been given life. We were lost and have been found. There is no point, there is nothing in our lives that we can really compare that to other. Uh, we have small examples of what it means to kind of be lost and be found or, or what it means to be maybe knocking on death's door and for God to heal us. Those are beautiful stories. But something, this has such eternal implications that it's, it's incomparable almost. It's, it's invaluable. And if you'll notice, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol Him. That's what he says in verse 11. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. There's a way in which Paul is using the Old Testament to speak about how we speak both to God and one another. Our language to God is praise. Our language to God is worship and adoration. Our language in the context of with each other is worship and praise to the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that we can never have conversations about sports or life or, or anything like that. But it does mean that our hearts are, such, are filled with such joy that in casual conversation, adoration for and glory to the Lord naturally come out. Because Paul is talking about a pervasive joy that works life in us, that works newness in us. Paul brings this round through Isaiah in verse 12. He says this, he says, And Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. So Jesus comes to rule his people, even he who comes to rule Gentiles, not just ethnic Jews, but Gentiles also. He rules them as his own people. And in him, Gentiles will hope. This has given us an expanse or an idea of how expansive the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, the church actually is. There is no land border that captures it. There is, there is no ethnicity here. That, that then gets excluded because God has come to save a people from the nations to be His own. I love how He uses this Isaiah quote here, the root of Jesse will come. There's, that's, very, that's very aptly chosen. It was, it was inspired by God <laughs> through the pen of Isaiah. And Paul uses that phrase specifically here. The root of Jesse when we start talking about the root of Jesse, Jesse is David's father, whom we know we should, or if you didn't know that, Jesse is David's father. 
And when, when we have prophecy about the root of Jesse, we are getting something of the divine and the human component here. As a part of Jesse, he is human. He is, he is through the lineage of David. As the root of Jesse, he is the beginning of Jesse. He is the one who is before Jesse. And so when Isaiah uh, writes this and Paul quotes that he's talking about this divine God-man, this Messiah, this, this human divine person who will come and bring hope to the nations, bring salvation to his people. And so if we take this at face value, what we're understanding here is that the world is subject to Christ. He is the ruler of all, whether they acknowledge it or not. And that his love, he has a special redeeming love for his people, and he gives his people hope. He rules the nations, and it is through him that the nations will have hope, those whom he calls to himself. Now, I alluded to this a moment ago, and I'm going to come back around to it now. Paul has four quotations here, two from Psalms, one from Deuteronomy, and one from Isaiah. If you break down the Old Testament, the way the Hebrews wrote it, is Torah, right? Or, or um, I'm sorry, Tanakh, the Tanakh. The Tanakh stands for Torah, Nethuvim, Kethuvim. That is the law, the prophets, and the writings. When you see what Paul does here, he quotes from the the law, Deuteronomy, the prophets, Isaiah, and the writings and the Psalms. So he's taken now a portion of each of the three major components of the Jewish Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, to speak of how it declares the reality of the salvation of the nations through Christ. And so he's declaring the lordship of Christ to all who would come to Jesus, whether they be Jewish, whether they be Gentile. He's declaring as a part of the Israel of God, those who would come from every nation, tribe, and tongue to come under the headship of Christ to be a part of the redeemed, particular, elected people of God. Beloved, it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful truth. It is a beautiful reality that Paul is saying, why do we bear one another's burdens? Why do we bear with each other? Why are we patient with each other? Because, A, we all know what it's like to be lost and be found. We all know what it's like to be hopeless and find hope. We all know what it's like to look for the answer in other things and not find it. And we all know what it's like to call Jesus Lord. That is the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of the New Testament. So as he brings these quotations together and making Jesus the answer to the Old Testament promises for those who would believe, whether Jew or Gentile, the idea is that Jesus is the hope of the nations. He ends this little paragraph here with this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is a final prayer, a little benediction as it were, a prayer for for the church. This is signaling us that, that Paul is getting towards the end. He's already done this in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So he's prayed a, a prayer in verses 5 and 6. He does this again in verse 13. This prayer, notice how he identifies God. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I love what he does. He says, the God of hope, 
And as a part of the God of hope, he's going to fill you with a few things, with joy and peace and, and, and fan into flame belief so that we might abound in hope. What I love is that God gives us hope. How? What, what, what is kind of the, the current of hope that lives in us? Well, we experience it as we have joy in the Lord and as we have peace in him. So I'll tell you, and, and this will probably ring true with you. If you're having a hard time feeling the joy of the Lord, my guess is you're also having a hard time hoping in Him because those things become connected. Like, in other words, when we are feeling joyless, we probably tend more toward despair in those moments because joy and hope, they work together. They work together to remind us, oh yes, Christ is reigning. I can rejoice even in the hardest of circumstances. Oh yes, the, the world is just descending into madness, but I have hope because Christ is is reigning and is the Savior of His people. And so hope and joy, they work together. But I tell you, you can't have hope and you can't have joy and you certainly can't have peace if there's no believing. So we, we have these crises of faith sometimes where we, we struggle in our own belief and it should not be lost in us that in those moments we also struggle with joy. We struggle with peace and we struggle with hope. Beloved, don't you see this beautiful golden chain, this tapestry that's woven together? Every thread matters and it counts. So we can't, we can't struggle with faith and expect to have these joy-filled, hope-filled, peaceful lives. Just like we can't have this peace and joy and hope without really working out our salvation and faith before the Lord. This is so important. Paul prays, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing. Why? Because he knew as human beings this is exactly where we'd struggle. This is where we'd struggle. It's those intangibles, those things of joy, those things of peace, those things of belief that culminate in hope and that help hope to fan into flame. That's where you will struggle that's where I struggle, and we will constantly struggle there. Not because Christ isn't big enough, but because the world often draws our gaze away to things that we think might be more beneficial. But here's how I love how he seals this up. Now, are you just going to walk out of here and muster up all that hope and belief and joy on your own? You certainly are not. It won't happen. It will not happen. What Paul says, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Beloved, how do we abound in those things? By the power of the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? He guides us in all truth. He is the, the comforter. He's the counselor. He is the convictor. He's the confronter. He's the thing that lays truth bare for us. He's the thing that says, nope, not, not, not this way, that way. Not, not, not that way, this way. No, don't, don't go this direction. No, I wouldn't do that. No, you need to be doing this. That's what the Spirit is constantly at work pushing us in the direction of a Godward direction. And it's amazing that when we follow the Spirit, how do we follow the Spirit, Brad? We read God's Word. We spend time in prayer. We commune with the Lord and we obey the teachings of Scripture. When we do that, it is amazing the sense of joy and peace and hope that we have. Beloved, I'm not naive. It's not always easy. And we're not always going to feel like that's true. This is where we have to rise above how we feel in a moment and declare what is true. Paul says that 
May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Whether you feel it or not, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. Jesus gives us hope because he is God's yes and amen. Every Old Testament promise finds its fulfillment in Christ. I'm not making that up. Jesus said that about himself. Jesus said that about himself in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. He's the one who told the disciples, all of the Old Testament testifies about me. So the Bible, from the fall to Revelation, it understands that humanity is needy beyond our own capacity to fix it. We don't merely need a circumstantial hero to save us from this moment. We need a constant Savior to guide us and to keep us, to save us from sin's power and be transforming us more and more into His own image. That's the need of humanity. Jesus lived, He died, He was raised again to accomplish that very task. And so He brings people into His fold that we might have life, that we might have hope, that we might have peace, and that we might have those things in abundance. My prayer for me and my prayer for us is that we realize that. Please pray with me. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the hope, the peace, the joy, the belief, and all the things that go with those that we have in abundance in you. Father, forgive us that we so easily cast them aside in the pursuit of other things, that we find other pursuits easier. Maybe we find more value or meaning in other pursuits. But Father, uh, take, help relieve us of those misguided notions that we might have real joy, real peace, real firm standing in who you are. Oh, Father, forgive us for the many times we get sidetracked in the wilderness. And help us to walk hand in hand with you, even through the valley of the shadow of death. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.